0: This is Central Coast Public Radio KUSP Santa Cruz, streaming and podcasting at kusp.org. The Seventh Avenue Project is next. Hello and welcome to The Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, your host. On the show today, Payback, part two of the Rick Walker story.
1: When Mr. Walker was arrested, he had a good job as a self employed mechanic and a reliable income day he has no home, no job, no income, and no assets. During the 12 years that he was incarcerated, his son grew up and his father died. It is very rare on the floor of this House members that we have an opportunity to set a wrong right. We have that opportunity tonight for one person, I believe that opportunity is also our opportunity to show 35 million Californians that we have the right stuff. I would respectfully ask for an I vote.
0: That was California legislator Joe Semidian in 2003 speaking to the state assembly on behalf of Rick Walker. A few months earlier, Walker had been exonerated after a dozen years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Semidian was trying to get Walker a measure of restitution for all those years wrongfully imprisoned. It wasn't easy. On this edition of the 7th Avenue Project, the fight to get compensation for Rick Walker and exonerees like him. I'll talk to filmmakers Gwen Esijan and Mark Ligon, whose new documentary tells the story of the legislative battle over Rick Walker's fate. The clip we just heard of Joe Semidian is from the film. I'll also talk to Rick himself about his life after prison, and we'll learn about the plight of other exonerees nationwide from Lola Volan, director of the Life After Exoneration program. That's all ahead. First, a little recap. On last week's show, we heard how Rick Walker, a mechanic living in East Palo Alto, was convicted in 1991 of homicide. The conviction was based on the false testimony of the actual murderer, Rahsaan Bowers. Rick was sent away to serve a 26-years-to-life sentence in California state prisons. I had come to the point
2: where I felt like this is where I'm going to live for the rest of my life, is in prison.
0: It took more than a decade to overturn his conviction. But through the efforts of his family and a young attorney named Allison Tuker, Rick Walker was finally declared innocent and freed in June 2003. He confronted
2: his new life with a mix of emotions. There was a ton of things going through my head, but most of all, it was like, it's really over. This 12-and-a-half-year nightmare is really over. On the other hand, there was the question, what next? I have to actually start all over again. I didn't own a pair of socks.
0: Now, you might imagine that there'd be a lot of government services to help exonerees. I mean, these are people who are victims of the justice system, who had years of their lives taken away because of mistakes by the state. So, naturally, the state must do its utmost to set things right, right?
2: Well, no. If I was a convict and I got out, I'm entitled to $200, some clothes to wear, right? And you go see the parole agent and they'll get you housing. You can get um, general assistance, food stamps, but exonerees are exempt from all of that. You get no $200, you get no clothes, you get nothing. The arrogance of the state of California is that they never thought that they'd make a mistake. They never did. They don't think they make mistakes in the law. So there was no law on the books for me. When I got out, I don't exist. There's no provision for a guy like me.
0: At that point, as she'd done before, Rick's attorney, Allison Tuker, went to bat for him. She took his story to Joe Semidian, a Democratic Assemblyman at the time, now a state senator. He, in turn, took Rick's case before the California State Assembly. What happened next was a dramatic moment in state legislative history, and it's recounted in a new documentary called $100 a Day. I spoke to the filmmakers, Gwen Asijan and Mark Ligon. How do you think the justice system failed in Rick Walker's case, that is, in his wrongful conviction? What went wrong there?
3: Well, one of the themes, one of the things that developed as we went down this process of documentary filmmaking, is that um, our systems of government um, have adopted and many, many institutions in our society have taken uh, a winning at all costs mentality. And uh, in the justice system, it it has the face of uh, we need wins. Uh, District attorneys' offices are – it's an elected position. And uh, people need the notches on their belt. And on the legislative side, you have the institution that is extremely partisan, and each side needs to win. And it, what happens in these instances is that people like Rick Walker get lost in the shuffle. Mm. Uh, they they fail to realize that there are real people attached to the decisions. And one of the reasons that Rick was put away is because of that.
0: Uh, in fact, you're, you're echoing a line from um, your film, which was spoken by Jerry Ullman, professor of law at uh, Santa Clara University and a very well-known lawyer, partly for his participation as a member of the Dream Team for O.J. Simpson and also for, as a scholar of law. He says that the adversarial system has gone too far, uh, winning at all costs and lack of respect between prosecutors and defense attorneys. Um, in Rick's case, he had sort of a double whammy, a very aggressive prosecutor who may have bent the rules, And certainly pushed the case too far. And apparently, at least according to some of the people in your film, a defense attorney who didn't do his job—woefully
3: lacking—I think it was Jerry, who also said in the film that uh, Rick's case was the perfect storm.
0: You two talked to um, George Kennedy, who was the district
4: attorney at the time. He was the
0: head of the district attorney's office in, in Santa Clara at the time. Now he did not handle this case, Rick Walker's case, himself. That was a guy named John. Shown. Shown.
4: He didn't handle it himself. But no, George Kennedy was the district attorney at the time of the Rick Walker case.
0: Well, let's hear a clip from your film. And this is George Kennedy, former head of the Santa Clara DA's office, talking about how he feels about what happened to Rick Walker. One of the worst things that's ever happened to me in my life, of course, is being the department head, the person with ultimate authority over that office that convicted him at the time that it happened. it's one of the you know what what worse thing can happen as a prosecutor than having an innocent person convicted and go to prison for 12 years that's a remarkable thing we just heard uh this is a former DA in effect saying we were wrong we were really wrong
3: yes it is district attorney office is Around the country are under a lot of pressure to get the bad guys off the street and it 's a very politicized uh institution and we tend to look at our institutions in in they well either negative or positive way. all district attorneys' office they're terrible, awful people, or the defense attorneys are are the good people or or vice versa and that isn't necessarily the case and one interesting thing that we sort of discovered through this process is that it was an institution and the people who terribly wronged Rick and uh, incarcerated him for 12 years for the murder he didn't do. On the other hand, another group of people within those institutions freed him, went above and beyond the call of duty and what was right and freed him.
0: Um, So Rick Walker was ultimately proven factually innocent. That's the legal term. Uh, it, it, It went through the courts. He was proven innocent. He was released from prison after nearly 12 years. Um, Gwen, tell me what happened when he was released from prison what, how does that, you know, do they just open the prison gates and you're on your own or, or how does that exactly take place?
4: Well technically Santa Clara County sent a car to pick him up from uh, Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California and when they brought him down and they brought him into the Santa Clara County Courthouse so the judge could bestow upon Rick in person his uh, declaration of innocence um, after doing so Rick was just simply free to go, but he was free to go down through the back stairs and out through the back gates of the courthouse, not through the front doors of the courthouse. And there his life was to begin again. Why the back stairs? He really wasn't told why. He was just asked to use the back stairs. And once he got down to the to the street level, he actually snuck up on his family. The media and his family had been waiting, rightly so, by the front door of the courthouse. And he went up behind some of his family members and he put his arms around them and he said, Hey, what are you all waiting for? And there started his new life.
0: Mm. In the meantime... Um In those years when he was in the prison system, uh, his son had grown up. Uh, He was, I think, 11 years old when Rick Walker went into prison. He was in his early 20s when Rick Walker got out. His father had died. He was very close to his father. Um, Does the state help people out in that case? I mean, what do they do for people in this situation?
4: No services, no money, no assistance whatsoever. Nothing. Literally nothing.
0: So that's really where your movie takes up. The fight to get Rick Walker some kind of payback for those years served on a wrongful conviction.
3: The state of California allows one hundred dollars a day for every day that you're um, falsely uh, imprisoned, uh, and depending how you look at it, that's twelve dollars and fifty cents for an eight-hour shift. So you can take it from there any way you like. It is not a lot of money uh, for the. Uh, The wrong that was done to him. And so it's a struggle to get that amount of money. You just don't automatically receive a check in the mail. They put you through uh, a number of uh, bureaucratic hoops to. In fact, you have to, again, prove yourself that you're worthy of the money. And uh, many people aren't able to do that and need to hire lawyers, which is a which is another issue. The most. uh, people in these uh, situations don't have a lot of money, so it's a difficult situation from the get-go.
4: And some people don't even know that comp- that the compensation exists. Rick did not know that the comp- that compensation would be available to him. His attorney, Allison Tucker, is the one that informed him that he could potentially qualify for this money.
0: So the state doesn't hand you a package and say you're invited to apply for this hundred dollars a day, you know, compensation. There's
4: no orientation package for an exoneree. <laughs>
0: oh i'm laughing, but i shouldn't be
3: one one interesting uh f- statement that is in the uh, the paperwork uh, that uh that you have to sign is that you didn't do anything along the way to aid in your conviction, and that is, is just astounding to me i mean how uh, after you're found factually factually innocent in a court uh, in a courtroom that uh you need to prove yourself again so it's
0: not enough to be found in a very rigorous, you know, court procedure, innocent, uh, of the crime you were convicted of. You have to prove that nothing you did contributed to the conviction. Exactly. What happens to Rick Walker now? I mean, he's, he's got his attorney who's given all these years, by the way, pro bono for free to, um, securing his release and getting him exonerated. Who's now taking it a step further to try to get him compensated at the rate of a hundred dollars a day. Um, How does that go?
4: Allison Tuger is doing the best that she can in trying to help Rick fill out the paperwork and and collect all the appropriate information that he needs to submit to the Victims' Compensation and Government Claims Board, which is the state agency that um, oversees the uh, compensation. And she hits a roadblock. The Victims' Compensation and Government Claims Board's... uh, Deadlines are drawing near, and she feels like she needs some help, and that's when she turns to then-state Assembly member Joe Semidian.
0: Joe Semidian, who's now a state senator for the 11th District in California, which includes parts of our area, Santa Cruz, all the way through San Jose and up to uh, East Palo Alto, which was where Rick Walker was from, and therefore he was a constituent of uh, Joe Semidian. Absolutely. Um, The effort at this point is to get Rick Walker into this bill that's submitted to the state legislature annually or semi-annually?
4: It's the biannual claims bill and Allison contacted Allison Tucker contacted uh, assembly member simply to get some help for what she thought at that point was simply to get some help from the compensation board could you please Mr. Assembly Member who Rick Walker is one of your constituents get Rick Walker onto the next agenda the next and final agenda before the biannual claims bill comes up
0: if he doesn't get into this bill what happens
4: he needs to wait at least another 6 months
0: okay so the guy got out of prison uh, on June 9, 2003, and we're talking about now we're in the fall of 2003 or getting close to the fall of 2003, and he hasn't yet gotten a cent for his time spent in no. prison. And he damn well better get into this bill, or he has to wait at least six months, maybe longer. Uh, and he hasn't gotten any money sitting there in a bank account or anything.
4: No, he had moved back home with his mother, and he was trying to cobble his life back together um, as much as he could, but he had just come out of prison for 12 years with no income.
0: So so Joe Semidian took on Rick Walker's cause.
3: Joe Semidian is a very tenacious person. And when Joe hears a story, and when he thinks it's the right thing to do, he will move on it. And I think he understood Rick's story, and uh at the time, he ran into his own roadblocks. Uh, the justice for Rick was going to be de- delayed over uh, procedural uh, issues, and uh, Joe simply um, kept moving forward and, in the end, did something that was uh, very unique, and that is he amended one of his own bills and uh, basically named it the Rick Walker mm-hmm. bill, and uh, that's what went before the uh, the house and was voted on at two thirty in the morning. He essentially put Rick's face on a bill and said, "Look at all of you mem- uh, members. Take a look at this." And he basically pushed it in their face and mm. said, "Let's let's actually take a look at this mm. in a serious way."
0: But this is September of two thousand three, and the state legislature at that time was no more harmonious than it is now. Another budget crisis. Gray Davis recall was about to happen. Uh, Democrats and Republicans were at each other's throats. And here's Joseph Midian, a Democrat, trying to get a bill passed on the last night of the year's Legislative session. His
4: own party wasn't even happy with him. Uh, in the piece, we interviewed then Speaker Wesson, Herb Wesson. And Herb Wesson will tell you he spent all night physically trying to avoid Joe Simitian, ducking behind the dais into his into the Speaker's chamber, uh, maneuvering around him when he could find a way around, not speaking to him. He knew that if he allowed Joe Simitian to bring this bill up on the floor, everybody would be angry
0: the republicans were were pissed let's put it plainly they were pissed because a lot of their legislation some of their pet legislation hadn't passed so they had determined as this session drew to a close that they were going to vote down any democratic proposals that they could
4: the caucus had gotten together and the uh and the caucus had gotten together and they determined that they were going to vote down any two thirds bill just as simple as that either lay off them or vote no
0: and here comes rick walker's fate at the worst possible time, in a Democratic bill from Joe Simitian, into this session, um, which is now in the wee hours of the night,
4: he brought it up at two twenty in the morning. <laughs> the speaker finally, the speaker finally relented. He couldn't take he couldn't take it anymore from Joe Simitian, and he said, "Fine, go go ahead, see what you can do with it."
0: Now his his own um, his own speaker has told him it's you know before that this is probably dead in the water. He said it's a dead stick. In other words, forget it, Joe. But Joe Semidian says to him, and I think I'd like to play another clip from your film. This is Herb Wesson, uh, State Assembly Speaker at the time, Democratic, uh, talking about what Joe Semidian said to him.
3: He goes through the argument that he had been giving me all night and it fell on deaf ears. I'm not even paying attention to him until he said these words. I feel some magic going on.
4: I said, what do you mean?
3: I can't explain it, Mr. Speaker, but I think I feel this special magic. So I said, okay, I will allow you to take up the bill.
0: So so that was Herb Wesson, and he talks about Joe Semidian, who seems in your interview, I don't know Joe Semidian, to be a very cool customer, you know, not someone given to great, emotional outburst saying there's magic in the air. Did Joe Semidian explain to you what he meant by that or why he said that?
4: I think Joe Semidian is on one hand you could call him tenacious, on the other hand you could call him stubborn. And he is a dog with a bone. And for some reason he just felt so compelled uh, to take on Rick's case that he felt he owed it to Rick just to take it to the end of the line.
0: Mm. And it was the end of the line, at least for that year.
4: Literally to the end of the line.
0: And as your film sort of uh, reconstructs, um, you know, you got a lot of good footage from that uh, state assembly session on that last night.
4: Thank you, California State Assembly Television Department. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you how you got that. Um, Joe Savidia just goes to the mat for this bill. Now, I would think that the Republicans having said that they were going to basically shoot down anything that came from the Democratic side, and you know the tough on crime thing being what it is, and the budget being what it was, that getting some money to the tune of what was it total at $100 a day for 12 years? 421000 $421,000. Getting the money out of the state. I mean, it just seems like a, a recipe for failure all the way.
4: And something, I don't know, something we learned, and I, perhaps you, you know this, something we learned that's very unusual, which was another reason why Herb, didn't, Herb Wesson didn't want it to come up, is there's rarely a piece of legislation that gets voted on that's about one person. It just doesn't happen. So that was another reason that, that there was some trepidation on the Speaker's part, because you, you don't have time. You know, you have all these, you, you know, 35 million Californians, you, you always enact laws for the masses.
0: So it certainly looks like it's doomed, but Joe Semidian makes a final speech before the uh, legislature. And you've got, again, thanks, I guess, to... uh,
4: California State Assembly Television. (laughs) You
0: have a clip of that, so let's play that.
1: We are ordinary people here, members. But when ordinary people cannot respond to extraordinary circumstances to make the system work, there is something seriously wrong with that system. When Mr. Walker was arrested, he had a good job as a self-employed mechanic and a reliable income. Today he has no home, no job, no income, and no assets. During the 12 years that he was incarcerated, his son grew up and his father died. It is very rare on the floor of this House members, that we have an opportunity to set a wrong right. We have that opportunity tonight for one person. I believe that opportunity is also our opportunity to show thirty-five million Californians that we have the right stuff. I would respectfully ask for an I vote.
3: Well the drama was is just incredible. And and the the tension in the room uh is palpable. Um And the level of partisanship in the room is significant. And what Joe does is simply, I think, threw a big bucket of cold water all over everyone who was in that assembly chamber and said, wake up. Let's actually, you know, stop and think a moment. And uh, his first speech, you know, the first vote, uh, he went down. He did not get the votes that he needed. And he uh, uh, made a call which uh, delays the final vote. And he went back uh, and he... um, Uh, spoke to members one-on-one for the next half
0: hour walked around walked around the
3: room walked around the floor uh uh, talked to people eyeball to eyeball as he said and said don't you get it don't you understand what this is about what i'm telling you uh is 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 the truth and we need to look beyond our partisanship and we need to do the right thing for once and uh that's uh, this is at two in the morning 220 it's going on three o'clock by now Yes, people are getting tired, and emotions are uh, very strong, and uh, Joe keeps plugging away.
4: We asked a couple of the members that we interviewed if they simply voted for the bill because they were exhausted and wanted to go home. Perhaps there were one or two.
0: But the majority voted their conscience.
4: In the end, the majority voted their conscience. In the end, I think that Joe Simitian's floor speech, which quite quite honestly, floor speeches really aren't meant to persuade people the members have had time to look at a piece of legislation before then floor speeches are a way to get up and and you know uh have the member make a public record the public can view it um it gets taken in um it gets taken down on, on the record but floor speeches aren't made to persuade people but he didn't have any time just didn't have any time he needed to educate inform and persuade all in those floor speeches that night because that was it that was the end of session
0: and here we are in this incredibly acrimonious, partisan atmosphere, and the final vote is taken.
3: And uh, Joe wasn't sure whether he had the votes or not. It was uh, a real crapshoot of how it was going to turn out. Uh, and in the end, uh, we show, in the film, we show the tote board. We, that's also part of the, uh, the video footage we were lucky enough to get to actually show uh, the tote board go. And uh, the votes went over 54, and uh, it passed, and there was a huge round of applause.
4: And ultimately it passed at seventy-three to zero, with a handful of members abstaining.
0: Close to unanimity.
4: Close to being unanimous. That bill, the Rick Walker bill, which it became known as, was the only two thirds bill that passed that night.
5: Mm.
0: So Rick Walker got his four hundred and how much? Four hundred and twenty
4: one thousand dollars. He did. He got it in the timely fashion that he deserved.
0: Your movie, uh, $100 a Day, your documentary, is is that rarest of things. It's a feel-good story about the American political process. (laughs) Imagine. (laughs) There is some hope there. (laughs) How rare, though, do you think this is? Democrats and Republicans coming together, voting purely on principle, uh, pushing politics aside... For the sake of righting a wrong, how, how should we feel good about our process now?
3: Well, uh, yes and no, I think uh, luck had a lot to do with, with the whole story with Ru- with uh, Rick being found uh, uh, innocent by um, Allison Tucker his mother, uh, as we know uh, knew alison Tucker's mother, and Allison spent twelve years uh, and and was lucky enough to prove to prove the murder. It was done by somebody else. Uh, Rick is lucky enough to uh, find a Joe Semidian, uh, as his uh, assembly person at the time to help him. Uh, so on one hand, it's like, isn't that wonderful uh, that, that a good thing was done and the right thing was done in the end? Uh, on the other hand, I, I'm afraid it's extremely rare.
4: As Jerry Ullman says in our piece about Rick's legal struggles, it was a perfect storm. I think you can say the exact same thing about his legislative struggles. I think it was a perfect storm. Can it happen again? Perhaps. Will it happen again? Perhaps. I'm just not too sure.
0: What do you two take away from the the time and work you put in on this film? What stays with you? Gwen?
4: I think Rick Walker stayed with me. I think you meet Rick and you don't look at your own life the same afterwards. His remarkable resilience. I mean, from the small things about what we complain about on a daily basis to what he went through, to how he has turned his life around and how he's moved his life forward. I think he's just done an amazing job. And I think that when you meet people like that, like Rick Walker, they just have a tendency to, to remain with you.
3: And you, Mark? Well, I think I end up with a sense of hope that our institutions, the legal institutions, our uh, legislative uh, branches of government uh, do have the ability to get it right at times. And I think these days with partisanship as uh, ugly and as uh, uh, predominant as it is, uh, sometimes I think the public doesn't think anything can be done. And there's a lot of hopelessness in terms of righting some of these very serious wrongs. They put Rick... uh, in jail for 12 years for something he did not do. And that same institution, not exactly the same people, but those same institutions turned it around and did the right thing. So in the end, uh, there is a certain amount of hope.
0: Well, thanks to both of you. Thank Thank you, you. Robert. That was Gwen Asijan and Mark Ligon of On Topics Productions. Their new documentary is called $100 a Day. And it'll be broadcast a week from today on the afternoon of December 27th on KQED Public Television. To learn more about screenings and broadcast dates, go to ontopics.com. And ontopics is spelled O-N-T-O-P-I-X. That's ontopics.com. This is Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. Robert Polly here with the 7th Avenue Project. Today, the second part of a two-part series on the story of Rick Walker, a Bay Area man locked up for 12 years in California prisons on a wrongful murder conviction. Next, Rick Walker reckons up the damage. Can any amount of money make up for those years falsely imprisoned? Stay tuned. Well, we just heard about the political push led by California legislator Joe Simidian to get Rick Walker some payback after his exoneration. The effort came to a climax on the last night of the state legislative session on September 12, 2003. Rick Walker says he was following the proceedings closely
2: from home. It was like an election night, you know. You're staying up to see what the results are, you know. And I was up that night and it was, you know. How are you keeping track of it? Well, people are just calling me on the phone (laughs) and giving me, you know, kind of like updates on what's (laughs) what's happened. So at four o'clock in the morning, uh, I got a phone call and they said, your bill passed. And it was the only bill that passed during the la- during that budgetary period it was the only bill ever passed you know it it was really really exciting to actually um hear about the updates and in the events that followed it and it did a lot it did it, it you know in my whole point in this it wasn't the hundred dollars a day it wasn't it's just that That law wasn't even written for exonerees. That law was originally written for any convicted person who spent one day over his sentence. He was entitled to a $100 a day. It was not a law that was written like I told you. There was never anything for an exoneree. They adapted it and just says, okay, well, we'll just give him the same thing we would give a regular convicted person. So... That was offensive in itself to me because I'm like, "Okay, so you wrong somebody in the state; they're only worth exactly what you would pay somebody who actually committed a crime, you know had to spend a day over you know, and so my thing is, I don't think a thousand dollars a day is enough money for i and, and and I actually stood in sacramento and 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 talked to a Senate committee up there, and I asked him all of them I said. I've been compensated, and I got a little money in the bank. I said, I'll give $1,000 a day to any one of you that would spend one day in Pelican Bay in a cell. I'll give you $1,000 a day. Any takers? You could hear a pin drop. So let's do a little
0: math here. $100 a day comes to $36,500 a year, Mm -hmm. sort of like a modest middle income Mm -hmm. wage for all those years lost. Total
2: of for for you of four hundred twenty one thousand. Four hundred twenty one thousand. They cheated me, even and even at that, because they say, "Oh, well, we don't pay you." Now this is where the law comes in for the convict and not for the exoneree. We don't pay you for the time that you were fighting your case on trial or pending conviction. They don't pay you if any for that. So if you fight your case for three years. You only get $100 a day for the actual time you spent in prison. So it would have been 428000 So I lost $7,000 because I went to trial for something that I was innocent of.
0: And, uh, of course, during those 12 years, you could never get that back, but your son, no. son sort of grew up. He was 11 when you went in. He was how old when you got out? He was a man is 23 about 23 yeah your father died um so you took a further action there's a lawsuit against the um county of Santa Clara based on your wrongful conviction and and imprisonment right and you ended up uh winning in 2007
2: you were awarded um I actually didn't win we settled you settled for 2.75 million yes that was a settlement it it, it it wasn't a win the actual arbitrating judge between the two parties told me sitting in the in the room with my attorneys he said mr walker if this case went before a jury they'd probably award you 40 million dollars for what has happened to you he said but i'll tell you never you, you wouldn't see a dime of it because they're going to appeal it appeal it, appeal it, appeal it. But if you guys can come to some sort of figure, you know, that you'd be comfortable with, you know, he says, I think you should go for that, you know. And so the bottom line was I was just so sick and tired of this entire process. I wanted to move on with my life. I had bills, you know. You think about it. When I got released, even with the even with the four hundred thousand dollars when I got released um I'm still a grown man living at home with his mother, and I have to actually start all over again. i didn't own a pair of socks
0: now the settlement that you got two point seven five million I imagine some of that at least went to the attorneys it didn't. Yeah. Did it leave you with enough that you were kind of set for life?
2: It it did because I just made a with the help of my attorneys and and um my good friend Allison, she wasn't my attorney at the time. My good friend Allison and and her dad who's a very good he is my personal financial advisor. And um, my attorneys and, let's see, just talking to some different people, um, I, uh, I took part of that money and got me an annuity to where I have a certain amount of money that comes to me every month as long as I'm breathing.
0: And yet, um, even with that annuity... You've been working all these years. Oh, um, almost from about two months after you got out to to now in this uh, automotive repair shop that we're sitting in. Yeah, so you you stayed, you know, you stayed on the job even though you got enough money to survive without it.
2: I can I can retire at any point, but that's not healthy. That's not who I am. I have to stay busy. So I decided that if and when I do retire from here. I've already built a shop on the front of my house, (laughs) so so that fifty-five Cadillac and my convertible cutlets and all of those cars that I own, you know, just and other cars that people want me to to restore for them. That's what I'll do. I'll I'll just retire into a different mode. The um,
0: the courts took away twelve years of your life, even more if you count the time leading up to your imprisonment but the courts also eventually cleared you declared you innocent um gave you money i know it wasn't easy
2: but you got money yeah fair trade no 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 way 12 years of my life my best friend died yeah best friend i ever had in my life was my dad he taught me to trade one of the proudest days in my life is when he says hand me that 916 box wrench and i handed him the right tool i was like i got it <laughs> you know cuz you know so stuff like that you never forget and 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 it's just like um i had a really really good life and and you know and that's another thing that always bothered me about this was like you know, I don't come from a broken home. I have two loving parents, you know what I'm saying? Always had good jobs. Mother's a, mothers always been a community activist, and you know, and in, in the political arena. My dad's always held two jobs and, and a side job, you know. um, And so I don't get where they, you know, made me into this big monster that they made me into and how, how it was possible then. I actually could see how it was possible once the fog lifted and I wasn't mad and angry anymore and I got a chance to actually look at what they had done to me, right? I got a chance to see it. They could have done this to anybody, Mm -hmm. not just me.
0: In fact, um, if you hadn't had the parents that you had, if you hadn't had a mom who went and found a friend of the family, who had a daughter who was at Stanford Law School, who became obviously a very accomplished attorney, if you hadn't had a dad who hit the streets and found out, you know, who the, the real perpetrator of this crime was or one of the perpetrators, you'd you'd still be there, wouldn't you?
2: I'd be in prison right now. Right now. Just, and what does that say about all the other people who were not as, as fortunate as me to have a father who was your best friend, you know, and was completely brokenhearted because his best friend was stolen from him. And a mother who, you know, and and that was kind of a, a really a trip because I was kind of like my mother's favorite child and my father's favorite child yeah seven kids but you know nothing i wouldn't do for my mom you know nothing i couldn't fix for my mom when my dad wasn't there and nothing i wouldn't do for my dad and i i just i lost my best friend no money in the world can replace my best friend no money in the world could they give me for just a moment to say goodbye to my dad you know um i lost both my grandmothers I lost my mother's two sisters, you know, and and, and a bunch of friends and family members, you know, just never got any closure in that matter, you know. And and so it was really, really hard. And so when they look at my situation and say, well, you got compensated this or you got that, you know, I said, would you trade all of that for this? No way. No way.
0: What do you think? Um. When you look at your life, I mean we've been talking about a case of unbelievable bad luck and a case of incredibly good luck in a lot it's of two
2: edged sword. It yeah, is. It's a yeah. two edged sword. It is. It cuts and it heals at the same time. You know, it, and it's 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 great on one hand, it is, and it's a real tragedy on the other you know it's it's hard to it's hard to try and put those two together in in the same picture, but it is it's 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 one of the worst tragedies that's happened in like George Kennedy said you know in his twenty year career as a district attorney, it's the worst thing that ever happened to him, you know, and you know it it tore the fabric of my family, not just my immediate family but my entire family—it—it it, it just tore my family apart. Um, we haven't mended today. My father got an ulcer behind this that led to some cancer that led to them taking his stomach out, which led to him, you know, withering away. I watched a man that was two hundred and twenty pounds that could lift and up his share anything strong man very strong man I watched him wither down to 145 pounds skin and bones I got a chance to see him before he passed away and a family visit at Pelican Bay but wherever he is today he can smile because Of him, right? He started the ball, the rolling, that got me out of prison. He started that ball, the rolling. He found the actual perpetrator. You know, he actually went out there and got the evidence. My mother found the people who knew what to do with the evidence that my father found.
0: It's a family story all the way.
2: All the way. All the way.
0: Well, Rick, um, I I don't know how to say anything other than thanks for telling me your story.
2: Telling you my story is telling the world my story. It's therapy for me. And um, it's just, if nothing else, if nothing else, I don't wish this to happen to Anyone, anyone, and I already know there's thousands of guys that are sitting in prison that are just as not as, as fortunate as me and nothing lined up the way it lined up for me. You know, things that happened, all happened in, in a row for me, and I just I feel for them more than anything right now because they're sitting there. But I've got, you know, what really helps is I've got letters from guys. They told me, man, you don't have to write me back. I'm just telling you, man, you give me hope. You give me hope. There's hope out there. If it happened to you, man, my case, oh, it could happen for me. It give them a reason to stand up, get up the next morning and go digging some more or have somebody look into this or look into that, you know, because under a rock, the answer's there. You just got turned over.
0: You're listening to the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and today, Balancing the Scales, Life After Exoneration. And lastly on our show, we'll consider the predicament of exonerees across the country with Lola Volan. She's a visiting scholar at the Institute of International Studies at UC Berkeley and directs the Life After Exoneration program. So in the show, we've heard about uh, Rick Walker and uh, how he got out of prison after being found factually innocent after 12 years behind bars. Um, How many people, roughly, are there like Rick Walker in the United States who have been exonerated after time in jail or in prison?
5: It's about 900 um, individuals who have proven their innocence and have been released because they were factually innocent.
0: And, and of course, we're not talking about those people who may be innocent but haven't been able to prove it and get exoneration.
5: Most of the wrongfully convicted remain locked up serving their sentence because they don't have the opportunity to prove their innocence. I
0: I want to focus um, in this conversation on the exonerees. Um, Again, those people who are released after time, incarcerated uh, after being proven innocent. Are there any generalities? Um, you can make about the kind of people who find themselves in this situation?
5: The vast majority of these convictions are associated with um, ineffective legal counsel. And people that are not able to hire their own lawyers are the ones that are more susceptible to these kinds of convictions. So most of the people that go in um, have gone in with very little um, in the way of financial assets and resources. And when they come out, um, they really have less because they've spent everything they've had. If they ke- went in with something, their family has usually bankrupted themselves. Um, and, in fact, they can be looking at a lot of debt. So I think that it's fair to say that most people who come out um, come out dirt poor without a, without a penny to their name.
0: And it sounds like you're saying most people... Who are in this position from the beginning um, are disproportionately poorer?
5: They're poor. Um, the uh, minorities are overrepresented as they are in the general prison population. And many of these individuals were fairly young when they went in. People usually go in anywhere from, I'd say, 17 years of age um, to about 25 and, and 26. And the reason for that is because at that stage you are naive with respect to the um, the criminal justice system and some of this pitfall, So you're enormously cooperative um, because you'll you'll trust that the system is going to to do the right thing, um, and you're you're easily indoctrinated. Um, and police have the ability to lie. It's not prohibited to lie during an interrogation. So when a police officer says you've failed the, the lie detector test, um, an 18-year-old isn't going to think, well, you know, is that true or not? Um, because they don't know that the system can work in strange ways. Mm-hmm. So the overwhelming um, majority of, of people went in when they were when they were fairly young. It is primarily men um, that uh, are are being exonerated um, and I suspect it's primarily men that are, that are wrongfully convicted but the reason for the difference in the exonerations is is because DNA evidence is usually associated with a um, uh, a rape and a murder um, which are overwhelmingly committed by men and they, you know, you folks serve an average of, of 12 years so that by the time they do get out whatever skills they had um, are really no longer applicable. Um, so they're, they're people that are completely um, outside of their their age group, their cohort. They they went in with a cohort, but by the time they come in, that cohort really is, is no longer applicable to them.
0: So um, for those people who do gain exo- exoneration and are released after some time in prison, you say an average of 12 years, what sort of help can they look forward to from the government uh, by way of compensation, money, services, assistance of any kind?
5: There are 23 states that offer no compensation for exonerees. Of the 27 states that do offer compensation, about a third of those are grossly inadequate, like Wisconsin, that limits it to $25,000 a year.
0: You're saying $25,000 per year in prison? No, no.
5: $25,000 maximum.
0: Maximum.
5: No matter how long you have spent in, in prison. So if you spent 22 years, you'll get a little bit over $1,000 a year. Um, and the the states with adequate legislation, oftentimes it takes years to have the claim processed and they can be denied. The the social services that exonerees need are really not adequately provided
4: through state
5: compensation laws. The few states that have that provision have not really been able to deliver it effectively as of, as of yet.
0: Um, if someone or some organization took away years of my life due to some wrongful injury or captivity of some kind, and I went to civil court and sued, um, I think we'd be talking about damages in the millions of dollars, um, typically. But you're saying that uh, when someone is locked up by the state uh, by mistake for a crime they didn't commit and, and, and finally released years later, in general, if they're lucky, they're going to get something in the neighborhood of tens of thousands of dollars back from the average state, and not even that from many states.
5: That's, that's, that's correct. And in addition to that, the standards for being able to pursue these wrongful convictions in courts are so high that very few um, individuals who suffered this phenomenon um, can pursue their claims against the the state. So prosecutors and police and forensics labs are um, relatively protected, not complete immunity, but you really have to prove a level of negligence on their part to have caused this this conviction, in order to get through um, most most courtrooms.
0: Hmm. What is being done, if anything, to uh, correct that situation?
5: Well, there are certain states that are currently considering legislation, um, and that process I think should be done in all 23 remaining states without compensation legislation, and in those. States where it is less than $50,000 a year, I think the legislation should be moved, and exonerees are beginning to do this to up the the appropriate annual amount. And there is now a bill in Congress that is called the Restitution for the Exonerated Act of of 2009 that essentially establishes what was established for parolees um, during the Bush administration. Which was a second chance set of services, and it would establish a national fund. Uh, right now, it's 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 at two million dollars a year. We hope that is going to increase, that can pay for services that develop specifically around the needs of this population.
0: You're you're saying two million total for this program?
5: It will be two million a year,
0: a year per- for
5: four years, and.
0: But for, for the whole program
5: for the entire country so.
0: for the entire country, for hundreds of people
5: yeah it's it's not adequate in terms of the level of funding, but the nature of the program and the idea behind it is precisely what this country should be doing for its its exoneries, so we do hope that Congress considers this legislation and also increases the amount so that it can adequately meet this this country's exonerate um, needs and we figure conservatively um, five million dollars a year um, should provide most exonerees with a modicum of, of services certainly nothing like individual psychotherapy for you know once a once a week but basic services so that they have a place to live. They know that they've got enough income so that they can pay their electric bill and their telephone bill. Um, we have employment vocational, assistance, and we also reconnect the individual with the community in which they live.
0: You're talking about services um, that help people reintegrate into, into life after um, wrongful imprisonment. What's, what is the psychological state of, of people who have been through this, this kind of experience?
5: They've been traumatized, and many of them actually meet the classical definition of post-traumatic stress disorder. They have nightmares, they have flashbacks. They get disoriented. Um, they're in a hyper aroused, hyperactive state. They fear going out with um, without a potential alibi should they be accused of another crime they they did not commit. So they suffer many of the symptoms that um, post Iraq veterans who have been traumatized suffer as as well. In addition to that, there's a very high incidence of depression. And many exoneries continue to function, nonetheless, because they have resilience. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made them out. But psychologically and and mentally, they many of them have really been hobbled. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's so hard to get that across to people what's what those individuals are like because there's such a gulf between their reality um, and our reality. Imagine yourself saying, okay. I'm not going to be placed in here. And everything who I am, what I am, um, all of that is no longer recognizable. Mm-hmm. And instead, you are cast in a completely different light, and you have to live that life. You can't deny that at some level that is who you are, because that is who you're treated as.
0: Lola Volin is executive director of the Life After Exoneration program on the web at exonerated.org. And that's it for this edition of the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and I will return next week. In the meantime, do keep your dial tuned to KUSP because the Latin Quarter is up next from 1 to 3 p.m.